Hello, everybody, and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. We are business creators. We're entrepreneurs, small business owners, local business owners. We're marketing and business coaches, consultants, and mentors. We're the folks who help others create and grow their businesses, and we have among us the do-it-yourselfers who like to have your own hands on the levers as you market and grow. If you are one or more of the above, and some of us who tune in every week are all of the above, take a moment, explore episodes, and discover how we help you win at the game of business and marketing. Also, be sure to check us out on networks like iTunes. Just do a search for Business Creators Radio Show or click the big button in the sidebar of our website. Every five-star rating is greatly appreciated and helps us serve more business creators just like you. And when you subscribe, you get fresh content delivered to your iTunes every week. As soon as you join us, over 180 episodes covering a variety of topics with some of the names you know and some of the names you're getting to know will be in your iTunes immediately for your perusal and your benefit. Today, I'm very happy to say, and I've been working on this one for over a year because this guy is, uh, this is a pretty major player in our industry, so he's sometimes kind of a hard get because he's got so many great things going on, which makes it all the more exciting when we bring on folks like him. And what we're going to be talking about is the secrets or rather are, the secrets to standing out in a crowded marketplace regardless of your niche. And to help us with that today is a man who, in many, many years of experience, has seen pretty much all of it and has worked with some of the biggest names. His name is Brett Ridgway. He's the co-founder of several companies that serve the author, speaker, and information marketer niches. That's us. His unique behind-the-scenes perspective, performing product fulfillments for some of the biggest names in the industry, lets him see what is working and what is not working. And before we got in this interview, I was checking out some of the info products that are in my library shelf and was stunned at how many of them were produced by his company. He is the author or co-author of seven books in the niche with his new title, The ABCs of Speaking, being released March 14th of this year which is actually right about now. So, Brett, welcome aboard. Adam, I am tickled chilly to be here with you this afternoon. How can I best help you, sir? Well, uh, the way you're going to help us here, uh, for starters, is I read off this uh, beautiful um, introduction, and, uh, you know, your book just very recently came out, and we're very excited about the fact that uh, the ABCs of speaking are out there. We're going to talk about that a little bit, too. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of what we're going to discover together today, is tell us a little bit about your own personal story, your own personal journey uh, that has brought you to the intersection of brilliance and passion where you serve our business creators today. Well, I would be happy to, Adam. It's kind of the story behind the story, so to speak. But way back, actually, in, in 1994, Five or six, Adam. I actually put up the first portal website in, the, in, a, in a particular niche, the plant engineering and maintenance market. Wow! And when I, when I put up that site, it's called maintenanceresources.com, and it's still up there. But it became kind of a, a portal site for that particular industry, and we were selling a lot of products. Back then, it was of course VHS tapes, 
you know, books, audio cassettes, et cetera, but aimed at plant engineers, maintenance technicians, hydraulic techs, et cetera. And so we were shipping a lot of products out to these various you know, industries that people had purchased on the maintenance resources website. Now, kind of simultaneous to that, back in in the early 90s, I did a joint venture with a guy named Carl Galetti, who I'm sure you probably know Adam. And of course, that I do. joint venture led that joint venture led to when he put on his first internet marketing super conference in 1999 out in Vegas. He actually called me up and asked me if I would handle the back sales table for him. Well, I, you know, I didn't even know what back the meant at that point in time, but I hadn't been to Vegas before, so it sounded good to me. So I said, "What the heck? Sure, <laughs> Carl, I'll do it." So I went out to the it was the Las Vegas Hilton back then and handled the back sales table for him. And at that event, I met people like Alex Mondozian and a lot of the speakers on stage. And obviously, as you know, Adam, a lot of people who put on live events who speak at live events are promoters in their own right. Right. And they saw what I was doing for or Carl, and they'd ask me if I would come and do the same thing at their events. And so we started doing more and more events as a handling the backroom sales table in the Internet and information marketing spaces. So that's where I met people like Armin Morin and Michael Penland and, as I said, Carl Galetti. But, I mean, Ryan Dice, Mike Philsame, I mean, you name a name in the Internet marketing space. You know, we probably work with them in some way or the other, Frank Kern, et cetera. And so long about 2002, one of the speakers at one of the events, and it was actually at one of Carl's events, another rendition of the Internet Marketing Super Conference, a guy named Jim Edwards cornered yep. me and said, hey, Brett, I know you do product fulfillment. Will you take over some fulfillment for me? And my business partner and I had been thinking about it for a while because it was kind of a natural outgrowth of all the relationships that I had established in the industry, said, hey, you know, what the heck? Let's put speaker fulfillment services together and, and see what happens. So here we are 15 years later, and, and we've been blessed to work with, you know, hundreds of wonderful people around the world, again, some of the biggest names in the industry, and, you know, we just keep keep on keeping on. All right. Well, uh, that's fantastic. And you know, pretty much all these names that you mentioned, uh, people in the marketing industry, people in the information industry, these are all folks who I've invested in, people who I've uh, either received coaching from or have uh, bought their products or studied their courses. And i got to tell you, you really do run the gamut. And over the years of just you and I being at different conferences, you know, we've bumped into each other in a couple pretty interesting places. So you're definitely a guy who gets around the industry and has a very, very broad view of what's going on, which is part of what's so great. Uh, what I'd like to do first here is uh, I'd like to uh, get into some of the mistakes that authors make uh, when it comes to uh, standing out in a crowded marketplace. So what are, do you see some of the mistakes authors making? Uh, you as the author of seven books and somebody who's worked with dozens, if not hundreds of authors yourself. Well, certainly being an author is very important, in my opinion, Adam, to help yourself stand out from the crowd because when you are the author of a book, you know you become the recognized authority. You will become the go-to person in your niche. So you need to have a book as part of your marketing repertoire Regardless of what you do, whether you're a consultant, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, a bricklayer, whatever, come, you know, come out with a book that positions you as a person that people should work with. 
the books right. I've written have all been written for the purposes of establishing credibility. You know, hopefully people believe I'm somebody that you should listen to, and I can share some content with them that will help them further along the path. But having a book, in my opinion, again, is critical to your success in differentiating yourself from all the competition out there. Because, you know, let's face it, in any given city, so let's say you're an attorney, well, there are dozens or hundreds of attorneys out there. So when somebody's evaluating, you know, who do I want to go work with? Well, it's, in many cases, it's going to be the guy that wrote the book. So when you become an author, though, there are certainly a number of things that you need to look at that can help put you ahead of the game, so to speak, when you are doing your book. And the first reason that, you know, the first mistake that I see people make, frankly, Adam, is, is writing a book for the wrong reason. I mean, you know, a lot of people have visions of coming out with the next New York Times bestseller. You know, they're, they're going to be the next Tom Clancy or David Baldacci or Lee Child or whoever it may be and sit back earning, you know, tens, hundreds, millions of dollars in royalties from their book sales. But that, you know, is the reality of that situation is few and far between. The major reason you want to have a book is, again, that credibility piece. It's kind of a fancy business card, so to speak. And if you write the book for the purposes of just because you think you can become a bestseller and earn a lot of royalties, you're kidding yourself 99 and 99 100 percent of the time. Now, if it happens, great, wonderful, fantastic. I mean, we're all familiar with a guy named Brendan Burchard who's had New York Times bestsellers, and yep. he, you know, is in our niche. But he's, you know, he's exceptional, obviously, rather than the rule. So make sure that when you're thinking about writing the book, you understand ahead of time what your end game is. Why are you writing that book? Is it to help you build a list? Is it to just share a wonderful story with your family? That's fine. Go ahead and write your book. But know what your end game is because right. that will dictate to a very large extent up front how you want to write that book in a sense, how you want to position that book, how you want to market that book, etc. So writing a book for the wrong reason is a, is a common mistake that, frankly, now, even before you get to that phase, Adam, a lot of people, you know, the first mistake is they make they think they can't write a book, and believe me, everybody can write a book. Are you still with me? Oh, I'm right here. I'm just letting okay. you go, I, man. I, 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 heard, I heard a beat that threw me for just a second, so I just wanted to make sure I was still li live with you guys. So you are you are 100% live. I'm sorry about that. I should probably interact more. You're just dropping so much brilliance on us right now. I didn't want to cut you off, so go ahead. All right. So back to back to the topic at hand. So, all right. You know, first of all, you can write a book, and the key to writing a book in many cases is recognize what your style is and how you can get your content out there because there are several ways that you can write a book without actually writing the book. You want to be the author of a book. You don't necessarily have to be the writer of the book. Right. So some things that you can look at if you just if you look at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen and it just overwhelms you. It's like, how can I ever write a book? It's so much work and all that. Then look at alternative ways to get that book done. For example, you know, maybe you're a writer already. You do blog posts, or you've created, you know, written articles that you just distribute on places like Easy Articles or whatever it may be. Maybe you have existing content that you can pull together and repurpose in some way 
as the basis of a book. So you don't necessarily have to start from scratch. You may have something that you can already use. Similar to that, maybe if you're already a speaker, you have presentations that you've done or webinars that you've recorded. Well, get somebody to transcribe what you said. Now, again, it's going to take some editing and cleaning up and all that, but that can be the basis of a book. Maybe the way that you need to get started is a, is a part of a collaborative book. So rather than writing an entire book yourself, maybe you just contribute a chapter to one of these compilation type books just as a first step. Get your foot in the door, so to speak. Get your name on, on a book so that you had a credibility piece. Again, it, perfectly fine. Maybe you have the situation where you're a better talker than you are a writer. Well, talk your book. Have somebody interview you. Somebody, for example, could t transcribe what we're doing right now, Adam, and form that into the basis of a book in some way. Right. Again, look at what you already have. I mean, repurposing is a very popular word in the information marketing industry. Yep. And it is so important that you do so. Because, number one, if you have to start with a blank piece of paper every time, it's a hell of a lot more work to do that. So figure out what you figure out what you've already got that you can use maybe to turn into a book or turn into whatever you may be. But the second reason you need to look at repurposing is because you've got to remember that the market has many different types of people who learn in many different ways. You know, they call them learning modalities. So some people are auditory learners. They like to listen. Other people are visual people. They might like to you know, watch a DVD. Other people are more, I mean, they're readers. They'd rather read a book. Perfect for the author, obviously. Right. But other people are more kinesthetic learners. They would rather do a live workshop and get involved, hands-on type thing or whatever. Sure. And so when you are looking to write that book or create that information product, you need to look at the marketplace and what people are looking for in the niche that you're serving. Now, I always call it a niche rather than niche, but since you said niche, we'll use niche today. Okay. So this whole phrase of repurposing comes back into vogue here because when you've written that book, one of the things that you need to look at, Adam, obviously, is how can I repurpose this book to serve the guy who is rather learned by listening? Well, obviously the answer is turn it into an audiobook, come audiobook, out with a different yes. format of your book, or come out with a podcast, or come out with a radio show like you have here. I mean, right. rather than delivering a physical book, if the person's auditory, take that same content, repurpose it, and deliver it via a different medium. You could also take that and expand on that, and, and maybe you create a home study course. Or I mean, there's any number of different ways you can go, obviously. But repurposing is entirely critical to you as an author. And just remember, when you're first starting out, what I said before is so critically important. You want to be an author. You don't have to be the writer. So figure out how you can get a book put together from repurposing what you have or doing a different transcription of something you've already done or whatever it may be so that you get that book done. Don't let that blank piece of paper overwhelm you. Just on a brief personal note here, I wanted to bring up a couple things that your sharing with us today has brought to mind for me. The first of which is, and I'm going to say this very clearly, is 
you're right. You have to be clear on your end game when you're creating a book or whatever else you create when you multi-purpose or repurpose, whether it's an information product or a podcast or an audio book or what have you. Is you got to be aware of your end game and you've got to know who you want to serve and how you want to serve them. I myself am in the process of uh, getting my own book out there and I know I've changed the date of the release about seven times and that's perfectly fine you know why that is is because I spent most of the year 2016 going through a very intense self-discovery process of figuring out what the hell I want to do when I grow up because mm -hmm. uh, I mean I had a I, I have a great business but I'm looking at this and I'm thinking do I really want to grow this do I really want to scale this because something about the brilliance and passion thing are just, they seem to be passing each other rather than intersecting like a nice, even, organized T. So we got to do something about this. So I went through a process of, for uh, several months, I ran a personal blog where I just wrote about whatever was burning my oatmeal that day, and I just got it all out there, and I spent months and months doing this. And then I went back and looked at the trends and looked at the tags and looked at the threads, uh, the way these articles could be grouped into different things. And then I looked back and I said, well, heck, uh, these things that I keep writing about, these themes that I keep coming back to, this is definitely a market that I can serve. And the way that I can serve them, I would really enjoy doing. Thank goodness I didn't spit that book out earlier this year because it would have targeted the wrong thing and it would have retracted the uh, wrong type of prospect energy and I would have been scaling something that on a scale of 1 to 10, maybe I give about a 6 or a 7 in terms of something that I want to do for the mass market. It's something that, uh, you know, that earlier book had I published it and gone forth with it as the author, not the writer, but the author, uh, I would have found myself saying, well, now I'm attracting all these other people that want me to do this one thing, but this is the type of thing that I really only want to do with a handful of selected clients who are invited by me rather than chasing me down. So why would I put out a book to nourish that when I can get that off the transom or through the grapevine or through a referral? Why not put a book out that matches where I want to grow? So very important point. Now we spoke about well, authors. Go ahead. Well, that, you know, that, that's great, Adam. And the key is, like you say, you're recognizing and thinking ahead of time about what your end game is. Because what you were just saying there made me think of a couple other things. Number one, like any entrepreneur, all of us has limited time. Right. So we've got to decide how we're going to best leverage our time. And when you're trying to build a business, the scalability you talk about is so important because if you are the business, then you've got a significant limitation on how scalable something is, especially if you're doing coaching or something like that. If you're selling a product, then you know that could be more scalable. But any type of business, regardless of what it is, whether it's a service business, a manufacturing business, or whatever, you've got to look at all the aspects of that business and decide, if you're the entrepreneur, which ones make sense for you to do and which ones make sense not for you not to do, both from a, a time standpoint yep. but also from the standpoint of what you enjoy doing and from the standpoint of what your time worth. I mean, if you figure... Let's talk about our company, for example. I mean, we're a fulfillment company. So when people are evaluating what they should be doing, 
the question that you've got to ask yourself, you know, what's my time worth? Am I a $10 an hour person, a 20 a 50 a 100 a 1000 You know, what's my time really worth? And if you're spending your time doing $10 an hour tasks, then you're significantly limiting how scalable your business is. Whether you bring on employees or outsource or whatever, you've got to figure out how you're going to amplify your time, and you should really be focusing your efforts only on those things that typically only you can do. I mean, you're the CEO. You're the visionary. You're probably in charge of the marketing. You're probably the primary speaker or whatever. Right. But all those things that make up running the business, you've got to really look long and hard at and decide, all right, am I the right person to do this? Is it worth my time dollar-wise? Is it worth my time in terms of opportunity costs that come with it? Is it within my skill set? I mean, I'm not the most technical person in the world, so believe me, if I spend my time putzing around with a software program, I'm not using my time very wisely in most cases. So right. you've really got to take that long, hard look at your business and how you can best leverage your time. Now, now that's what I call business amplifiers, whether that's like an outsourced person again or an employee. But it also could be, you know, redo a process, a different piece of software, a different piece of hardware, a different piece of manufacturing equipment, whatever. Any of those might come into play, but leverage is the name of the game. The other thing that your comments made me think of, Adam, is when we're talking about the book and the mistakes that authors make, the end game that we've discussed is so critically important because that will influence how you want to utilize that book from a marketing standpoint. I always believe that, it, first and foremost, a, a book should be a marketing piece. It should be the one thing that establishes credibility and then drives them back to you for additional products and or services. Right. So within a book, you've got to make sure you have what are called bounce backs, which are devices intended to get somebody to go from that book and visit your website, hopefully opt into your list, and then become a rabid follow of your, hopefully. I mean, let's face it. If somebody buys your book at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or in the local bookstore, they don't pick up the phone and call you and say, hey, Brett, you know, Frankie Joe bought your book today. Here's his contact information. Follow up with him. So you've got to figure out how you can use that book to drive them from the book to something online that will then capture their information so then you can do your follow-up marketing to them. So, and, and the end game is an important part of that. I mean, if your book is your lead piece, for example, Adam, and it's designed to drive them to a home study course that you have or a coaching program, well, then you need to have devices built into that book that drive them somewhere, again, to capture that information so then you can follow up appropriately with them about that coaching program or about that upsell of the home study course or whatever it may be. So great points that you made, certainly. Yeah. Now, what I'd like to do now is I'd like to move this more towards uh, speaking because you know you're here because you want to share with us about uh, speaking uh, going along with your brand new book, The ABCs of Speaking. So you've talked about some of the key mistakes that authors make, that information marketers make. Now, what about speakers? What are some of the crazy things that you've seen speakers do? Uh, I've pretty much seen it all, it seems like, but. You know, the, the biggest thing to me, Adam, that when you're considering doing speaking, and I highly encourage any entrepreneur to become a speaker, whether it's just at the local Rotary or Kiwanis or Optimus or whatever it may be, you know, you, you need to hone those speaking skills so you're comfortable in front of a crowd. And then you've got to decide what part of your marketing mix you want 
you're speaking to be because speaking in most cases is a marketing tool. It can be your end product certainly and in many cases is, but you've got to decide as a speaker whether you are going to be a keynote speaker or a speaker who makes their money selling product in the back of the room where I got my start in the back of the room at live events. Sure. Because they're totally different worlds in most cases. Now, sometimes you get a hybrid of the two, obviously. But what kind of speaker are you going to be? Keynote, where you're paid a, a go then and deliver your message. Ideally, in a great world, they also let maybe let you sell some product or service in the back of the room. On top of that, I mean that's the best of both worlds, obviously. But speaking is something that. Oh gosh, I'm trying to think of some good war stories for you or whatever. <laughs> oh, here, here, here's a here's a good. One. So, I was at an event, and this has been a few years back. But the speaker made an offer from the front of the room. Nobody responded to the offer. The speaker basically started telling people how stupid they were, dropping the price, and arguing with them about why they weren't smart enough to buy his product. Well, needless to say, that speaker never made it back to the stage before, or to the stage again, because obviously it's one of those things where if you don't establish a rapport with the audience early in the game, I mean, you, well, bottom line, you can't ever argue with the audience. Right. I mean, that's just stupid. But that's very it's, true. It's one, yeah. I'm trying to think of some other key things here. So. Let's let's switch it over to the promoter side real quickly, Adam, because okay. it certainly applies to speakers. But any good speaker going into an event should always do their homework up front related to who else is speaking at that event. I've been to events before where it was a multi-speaker event over three or four days, and they had maybe three different speakers talking about copywriting, obviously a very important subject, right. but – you don't need three people at one event talking about copywriting. The promoter was just basically trying to bring names in that they thought about attract a crowd without giving any thought whatsoever to curriculum. How are you going to piece your event together so that people get the most out of it? And so if you're a speaker who's going to an event and you see that there's somebody else up there who's going to be talking about pretty much what you're talking about, then you might want to speak to the promoter and maybe come up with a different slant, different angle, different topic, whatever, because you don't want to be speaker number two or speaker number three on the same exact topic. Yeah, you're going to have some differences in how you present and all that, but people will have tuned out by that point in time. One of the things that you also need to recognize as a new speaker, Adam, is that you got to have to kind of go through the school hard knocks and earn your stripes by getting some of the crappy speaking times and days and all that till you can prove what you can do up front. Yeah. So if you're the 8 a.m. speaker on a Sunday morning, you know, just know that you know, you'll be lucky if you have 20% of the crowd there. Um, there are so many things that come into play. The most important thing, I believe, from a speaking, speaking standpoint is truly understanding what it is that you want to share with the audience. And any speaking where you're selling from the back room, Adam, should have a good mix of at least 80 to 85% content. 
then no more than 10 to 15 percent of the time should be spent on the offer, selling whatever it is that you are promoting in, in the back of the room. I've seen some speakers who were wonderfully entertaining before, but they had product return rates of probably well, over 50 percent from the event because people realized there wasn't any substance there when they reflected on what they had heard. So they told a few war stories. I mean, one of the worst speakers I ever heard, and I'm not going to name names, but was at a, a uh, Glazer Kennedy event. Okay. And it and the person just basically told three or four war stories, delivered no content whatsoever, went directly to an offer, and we're sitting in the back of the room and saying, you know, where's what was it, Color Peller and the old Wendy's commercial? Where's the beef? I mean, where 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 what are you telling us that we can actually use? And this person with a big name, who is a big company, training speakers, does very well. But it, to me, it's all about delivering the content and really doing everything you can for your audience. And if you go in with that mindset, that viewpoint, you'll have far better success as a speaker. Yeah. You know, uh, there are a couple things about speaking. Uh, you know, Because I, I do public speaking myself, and I you know, got good at it just by doing a fair amount of it. Uh, you mm -hmm. can have an offer that you can make from the stage that will close 71% of the room like I did my very first time out. And you can, also have you can also have situations where you get a heckler. I've actually had hecklers, uh, which a lot of people tell me means I'm doing something right because now I'm getting people fired up. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, but, you know here's, here's, how you have to look, here's how you have to look at that. You're, number one, you're not going to please everybody. And uh, number two, uh, you're usually not going to be in a position where you can just have security grab them and throw their asses outside for disrupting your speech. But there are ways you can deal with hecklers, and uh, studying improv comedians can be a way of doing that. And also looking for the silver lining in every cloud can be another way of doing that. So I wouldn't encourage people to say, oh, goodness, not everybody loved every single thing about my speech. I better never do that one again because now you're going to become just an every speaker, uh, and I think we've all seen some of those. Uh, that, being, that being said, another thing I want to mention about speaking here real quickly is that uh, I sometimes see folks who are so focused on the form of it, so they have to position themselves, their body, just a certain way. And I'm, I'm aware of the fact that the stage has different energy points. So you go to one place if you're telling a joke. You go to another place if you're telling a, a sad story. So then you can move to the happy place when you adjust the audience's uh, adjust their moods and move them towards you. Uh, there's the uh, direction you need to move when you're telling a story and things like that. And sometimes I get up on stage and I'm totally down with that and I can, I can do it like a pro. And then there are other times, and these tend to happen during my more informative talks, when I'm doing more teaching than entertaining, because there's a difference between teaching and entertaining, where, you know, I just can't track that stuff. And yeah, I will have to read word for word off a PowerPoint slide because I need the transmission to be both verbal and visual for the audience to get it in the amount of time I have. So I'll get up on stage and I'll say, look, I know that they teach us in public speaking school that you know, you're supposed to move to this part of the stage to tell a joke and this part of the stage to get you to laugh and this part of the stage when you're telling a story and I'm supposed to move from left to right as I go through and I jump back and forth and everything else. Um, and I know how to do that, but today... 
we're not going to do that. Are we rule breakers? And then they say yes. Are we breaking the rules? Yes, we are. So what I do is I get the audience's buy-in for the fact that I'm not going to be perfect. And I, you win them over that way because now they are – now instead of them critiquing you saying, oh, he doesn't know how to do the thing with his hands and the steepling thing, uh, now they're <laughs> with you with you in the fact that you're just up there being authentic. So if for anybody who's listening to this who's worried that, oh, I might not have the poise of a public speaker, you can just excuse yourself at the very beginning from being perfect and get the audience to cheer you for doing so. Then you have them on your side, even if you, you know, mumble it up or you find yourself having to read off a PowerPoint slide once in a while to keep yourself focused on whatever you need to do. Well, I think that's a great point. I think what people need to recognize, Adam, is you know you try to control the factors that you can't control in the room. Some things you can't control, and you've got to be very flexible. Ability to go with the flow, and you know you prepare as much as you can ahead of time for those situations. So if you like, you say have a Hector, you're going to know how you want to try to handle what up front as much as possible. But that being said. So unforeseen things will happen, and you've got to just be prepared to deal with it. But the real you is the most important thing, and just you know, being yourself and not trying to put on a false front. I mean, I've seen some speakers who have a one persona on the stage, and then you know, backstage you hear them cussing out their staff because they didn't you know close enough or whatever. And it's, it's, it catches up with you eventually. Will you get maybe found out today? No, but eventually word will get around within the industry about what kind of person you really are, and the gigs will start to dry up, and it will become harder to do it. So you know, when we talk about the factors you can and can't control, one of the things that I think people need to think about, and you mentioned it, was it relates to metrics. So if you're selling from the stage – there are certain things that you're going to want to test over time to see what impact they have on their closing rates. I mean, the 71% closing rate you mentioned, fantastic. So were you wearing a tie that day or not wearing a tie that day? If you're a woman, you know, one thing you might evaluate, you know, business suit versus brightly colored dress, how you title your presentation, your offer, your inclusion or exclusion of different bonuses, the actual temperature of the room, how certain key parts of your presentation are worded, whether you did a PowerPoint or no PowerPoint. And I certainly don't recommend reading your PowerPoint. It should just be a guide to what you want to talk about. Right. But, you know, they can read your PowerPoint, obviously. You don't want to be a just a straight verbatim reader of your PowerPoint. But if you're selling the product, whether you have it delivered later on or delivered to them in person at the event, how does that impact your closing rate? Whether you're selling a physical or a digital product, your time slot, or do you have a morning slot on the first day, an afternoon slot on the second day, etc. The speaker that you followed or preceded, if you end up happening to be speaking right after somebody who pulled a lot of money out of the room, well, obviously that can have an impact on what how well you do. The demographics of the audience, whether the buyers are male or female. I mean, all these things are things that eventually, if you're intending to do a lot of speaking where you're going to be selling from the stage, you want to try to attract and see how they impact things. Now, obviously, you have to have a number of speaking engagements before you have enough actionable data to really know how things are impacted. I mean, obviously, for years, the norm pretty much from stage was, you know, you're wearing a suit. That's just how it is. 
Now, my garb these days pretty much typically is a nice pair of blue jeans, a, a polo shirt, and a sport coat. So it's more, a little more laid back in terms of how the industry has gone. But speaking is certainly something that every entrepreneur, every creative business person ought to do as part of helping them to grow their business. You know, you raised another great point, which is, um, and I'm going to use a euphemism here, taking the temperature of the room before you go on stage. Uh, and I find that when, you know, just because of the nature of what some of my topics are, I tend to be the day three guy. And it's because just what my topics are, they tend to be kind of your bringing things together type topics. And I'm mm -hmm. also one of those folks who can bring up a lot of energy and keep the audience engaged after lunch. So I'm the best cure to a food coma. In fact, I mentioned that in some of my <laughs> presentation materials when I'm going out getting gigs. I'm your after lunch guy because I'm the, I'm the guy who keep your audience engaged and keep them awake so that they're not dozing off for the rest of the afternoon. Because uh, I'll get them jumping up. I'll get them interacting with me. And uh, I'll, I'll keep them leaning forward in their seats. That's just a gift that I've developed over time and a skill I've developed over time. So uh, going along with that, I like to, you know, without getting too deep, I like to interact with a lot of people and uh, I'll often just stand off to the side and just watch the dynamics of the crowd, see who stands out, how they stand out, why they stand out. Because my presentations on the stage, I try and interact with people. I'm looking for friendly faces I can call upon. And I'm looking to build some rapport with some folks, and I want to get a sense of how they're likely to react to a call-out before I make one. Well, I think you raise a great point because a lot of speakers are very weak at that very thing because they, number one, they be, are kind of what we call the hit-and-run speaker. So, you know, right. they zip into an event, you know, 20 minutes before they're supposed to talk, go up and talk, and they zip out right after the event. And I think it's very important to truly build rapport with your audience that they see you, that you're actively involved in the event. So they see that you're in there listening to the other speakers. Not only will that help you build rapport with them, but that will help you craft a better presentation because you can reference things other speakers have talked about, amplify a point, or take it into a slightly different direction if necessary, and also not duplicate things that somebody's already talked about. So if somebody does a you know, 20 minutes soliloquy on copywriting, for example, well, maybe you don't want to talk about copywriting during your presentation at all, so you talk about something else. So I think you craft a better presentation and build better rapport with your audience by actively being involved in the event. So that means you should be there for a three-day event. In my opinion, you should be there for all three days. Don't, don't become one of these hit-and-run people. Right. I, I, agree. I agree with that. Now, let me throw uh, something else out there, too. I want to circle back to where you're talking about don't read off your PowerPoint verbatim, and you are absolutely right. Uh, your PowerPoint should be a guide, and it should be a supporting feature in your presentation. It should not be the basis of your presentation. I personally just could not see myself getting up on stage without a PowerPoint to guide me. That's me. I own it, and I leverage it for success rather than saying, well, I'm going to get better at speaking extemporaneously. You know what? Not going to happen. So I'm going to use what I got, and I'm going to make the most of it, and I'm going to be damn successful that way. But as far as reading off the PowerPoint word for word, uh, one of my great joys in life, uh, Brett, is every so often you invite me to present to your Author 101 community. And as you know, the presentations I do for that community, including the one I did recently, uh, are tend to be more educational in nature. So when I'm doing a more educational speech, 
sometimes the reason I'm doing word for word right off a PowerPoint slide is because I want the audience to get both the verbal and the visual transmission because it's a snippet of language or it's a key concept that I want to burn into their little brains. And when I hit them with multiple senses, I can get through to them some way. Sometimes I'll even have the audience read it along with me so that they now are touching three different senses to get it into their brains. So it's an educational technique. But, yeah, for the more motivational or entertaining part of my presentations, uh, my PowerPoints are at most a guide. Well, that kind of relates back to the learning modalities in the sense that we talked about earlier, Adam. And I think what you're doing is perfectly fine. You're way more scientific than I am about it. I, mean, I just get up there and share a few stories and teach content, but I'm not nearly as scientific as you are about the whole process of teaching versus entertainment. So my kudos to you for that, and I think you're doing a wonderful job. And there's just, you know, it just points out that there's different styles, and there's no one way that's right or wrong or whatever. It's finding what works for you, and then delivering your message from a heartfelt place. Yeah, and I, and I thank you for saying that, too, because that's what I want all of our listeners to hear is you don't have to do it a certain way just because somebody says that, that this one particular way is right and the other way is wrong. You've got to find your own style. And when you own your style, you live your style, and you're passionate about your style, your audience will pick up on that, and they will engage with you no matter what you do, basically, as long as you don't go off uh, picking on people in the audience and insulting them. I mean, they can go to a stand-up comic for that. You're a serious public speaker. Sure. How many people, Adam, have we seen when you listen to them at an event and you say, oh, they did, are obviously a protege of person X or whatever? Because you know, sure. the mannerisms are the same, the language is, is largely the same, the phrases, the same phrases are used by both. It's like, well, that person obviously learned from so-and-so. And to me, it... You know, it strikes up a bit of a fakery or whatever you want to call it. You know, yeah. It, and, and am I really seeing the true person up here because they obviously are doing what they learned from so and so? But right. Oh no, just my, just just my two cents. <laughs> I got I got you, and you're absolutely right. So here's the deal, Brett. Uh, we're about uh, 45 minutes into this. Very exciting presentation, going very quickly here, and we pretty much touched on most of the talking points you gave me in the green room. In fact, you're one of those great guests we have here on the Business Creators Radio Show, where sometimes I'll ask you question number one, and you basically just go through and answer all of them. That happens sometimes, and that's perfectly great. And the reason it is is because there was a topic that I was hoping would be able to fit into this episode if we had time, and I'm glad we do. So what I want to get into, you know, merging the idea of speaking and even going a little bit into meeting planning, what are some of the best practices for how you configure the room. I've been in a lot of different rooms. I think some have been great, and I think some have left everything to be desired in the way they're laid out and the way they're organized. So let's say, you know, you, you know, Brett Ridgway is hired to organize an event. Uh, he has to go out, find a room. He has to organize that room, set it up. How would you do it? Well, the first thing I'm going to ask or look at, Adam, is, you know, what's the purpose of this particular event? Is it a workshop where there's going to be a lot of interaction between the attendees themselves. That type of scenario may lend itself well to a, you know, round tables versus rectangular classroom style seating. 
So what's the, what's the real purpose of the event? Is it a small workshop type format, or is it a large event where you're going to have multiple speakers from the stage and there's not going to be any interaction amongst the crowd itself? So that's number one thing that I'm looking at. I personally am not a big fan of roundtable events. I I I don't know. It's just me, but I certainly see where they serve their purpose. Right. So the second thing that I'm looking at is, is in a multi-speaker event, or is it just me, for example? And do I have a need or desire to get off the stage and out into the crowd? Depending on the size of your event, that's going to impact whether you want to have a platform up front or not. Because everything that you do in terms of setting up a space typically has a cost associated with it. It was uh, – gosh, it wasn't so many years ago that – our good friend Armin Morin was setting up an event, and he decided he needed a different backdrop or whatever. Right. So he just told him, hey, I want some skirting in the back here or whatever. And oh, I remember that. He finds out later thousands of dollars to get that skirting rented and put in the back of his room. I mean, out. I, rem- so, I was in the room when he was talking about this one, and it was kind of a last-minute thing. Not only was it the skirting, but he decided to have some of his uh, – of his signs redone because he recently changed his logo or gotten a new headshot or something like that. So he wanted to make the change across the board. And it was a last minute thing. I remember this. So all those factors come into play, but back to the thing in terms of, do you want to work the crowd? Or are you going to be out there? You know, if you're doing a workshop type environment where you're going to be out at the tables conversing with people and all that, or let's say, you know, we've seen round table setups, Adam, where, they have an expert at a table, and then people rotate around to talk to the different experts or whatever. Again, roundtables right. fits that. But if it's a large event where people are mainly just going to be listening to the various speakers, then typically you need a platform, again, depending on the size of the crowd, to be up where they can see. And then you've got to look at things like your room depth and your room width and all that because yes. if you have a event of a few hundred people or more, where people in the back row are 40, 50, 60 feet or more away from the presenter or the stage, then you're going to need probably some kind of big slide or a big screen, I should say, where the PowerPoints are going to be displayed. And you've got to make sure, even things like talking to your speakers ahead of time, make sure their PowerPoint font is large enough that the people in the back of the room can see it. Right. You've got to do things like, you know, send me your PowerPoint ahead of time and look at it and make sure that they're not trying to do little 12-point type that nobody can read sitting out in the audience. I mean, True. that just you know, hurts you. And then if your room is very wide, it's wider rather than deeper, then you may need two screens, one on each side, depending on what size of the room they're sitting on. If the room is very wide, you also probably, on the outsides of your room, you want to slant your tables toward the center a little bit rather than having them straight facing the room. I mean, there are a number of little things that come into play that most people, you know, frankly don't think about. If you have a multi-speaker event, you'll want to have some type of big countdown timer that they can clearly see from the stage. Ideally, yeah. you have right on the floor in front of the stage a dual screen one that has a, the timer on it, the other has their PowerPoint, so they can actually see their PowerPoint without turning around away from the audience and looking at the screen. Yeah. And I love the ones that also have the uh, next slide 
visible. Yeah, screen. yeah, well, they yeah. Show the first I, slide, I, I, the next I love slide. That technology. So I mean, and then you can think like the damn clicker will bite you in the butt. So make sure they know, you know, they test the clicker ahead of time, and they know what the range of it is. Make sure they know that there aren't any no-go zones on the stage in terms of it creates feedback with the audio system or whatever. So, you know, get your speakers up on the stage ahead of time. Make sure they know where they shouldn't walk to because it's going to give the loud, you know, ear-splitting crackling on the audio system or whatever. you got to do things like get their PowerPoint ahead of time. Make sure it's compatible with whatever system you're using to play PowerPoint at your event. I've seen more than one speaker in a Mac world come to a P-based event, and they had all sorts of problems with their PowerPoint. All sorts of things can butt you in the butt ahead of time, and you've right. got to you know, have checklists and guides to make sure that you're anticipating those things ahead of time and you're checking things out. I mean, make sure that your speakers, if you're doing a multi-person event, you know, know that they need to be there X amount of time before they speak so you can do sound checks and all those things that will help them deliver a better presentation for your audience. I mean, there's hundreds of little things that come into play. And, I mean, it makes me think back. The first book I wrote, actually, Adam, was called View from the Back, 101 yep. Tips for Promoters Who Want to Dramatically Increase Back to Room Sales. Yep. And it's just that, 101 little tips of things that you need to be aware of, whether yep. it's just something simple as hanging a towel over a door in the back so it doesn't slam shut every time somebody goes in and out. So it doesn't disturb the crowd. I mean, all these things can affect the energy of the room, the focus on the speaker. All of it comes full circle and comes together. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And yeah, I do have that book actually. It's on my bookshelf right now. Uh, I refer to it every once in a while. It's got some great tips in it. So we are uh, almost at the top of the hour. We have exactly nine minutes left. And before uh, we talk a little bit about your book or what have you, um, I just want to give you a couple personal observations based on my experience being a speaker and actually helping to run events. Because although I'm not a meeting planner, I used to be a meeting planner. And I do have a couple clients where I'm involved in the, uh, some of the planning of their events from a broad range perspective. No, I can't be hired mm -hmm. for that. Sorry, audience. But uh, it's only <laughs> for people I'm already working with. So sorry. But here are a couple observations. If you have a smaller crowd, uh, let's say, say 50 or less, I have found that if you want the room to feel a lot fuller, and especially if you have a videographer in the back where you're filming the presentation because you want to create a home study course out of it, you then repurpose and, and monetize, that you want your room to be narrower because it will make your room feel fuller. True or false? Well, I mean, true, but... It goes back here to one of the things we talked a little bit about before, Adam. When I see rounds, my first thought when I go into a room that's round is like, oh, it's going to be a very small crowd. They didn't get near the audience that they said they would get. Right. And so, you know, from my from my viewpoint, my experience is like kind of setting a negative in my mind ahead of time. I shouldn't be that way, but that's my natural reaction when I first see rounds. So. Yeah, you definitely want to do things, if you, especially as you said, if you're videotaping an event to create product that make it as much as possible to have people involved, active. I mean, nothing looks worse when you go into a room and they're videotaping it and you have one person in the front row, two people over here, three people over here, and everybody's scattered yeah. out and the room is half empty. 
So don't you know? Don't hesitate at the end of the day or at lunchtime to reset your room. You know, if you need to take out a row or two in the back, seats on the side or whatever, to push people more towards the front center so that you have a better video, do it. There's nothing wrong with yeah. that whatsoever. I've seen it done many, many times. Yeah, that's that's what that's what I mean. Because uh, you know, if we're getting footage, we make the room narrower. Because if you have 50 people in there, and we're not, you know, talking about round tables. Like, let's say we're just doing uh, theater style or classroom style. Uh, you can have five rows of 10, and because they're all concentrated towards the middle, because there's only five on each side of the aisle, and you only have five rows, you can position your camera to make it look like an arena. And plus, it creates more energy in the room because it brings people closer together, centering on that main aisle. That's just what I've experienced, so I want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And I think it's important to recognize that you want to have tables for the attendees, too. Yes. I despise rooms I go into as nothing but chairs, and people are trying oh, to yeah. hold stuff on their laps and putting cups on the ground underneath them and all that stuff. Your room will look – your people will have a better experience, and your room will look more full by having the tables in there where there's actually workspace and all that for your attendees. Okay. That's one. There's another one I run about, want to run by here real quick. Is uh, My experience, my client's experience is when you add a raised stage to the front of the room, particularly when you have a multi-speaker event, uh, that will create the feeling of a larger event, even if it's a small event, true or false. No doubt about it. That's true. Yes. No doubt about it whatsoever. I mean, it's kind of mandatory if you have a large event, obviously, for the whole line of sight thing for your attendees to the speaker. I mean, you bring a short guy in to speak at your event, and half the crowd can't see him because he's five, six tall. Sure. Uh, so you need to have a platform. Uh, but it also gives you the appearance of a more professional event. Uh, yes, you're going to invest a little bit of money in having that staging up there, but it goes back to overall affect, Adam. If you walk into a room and you see there is no stage, your thought is, oh, small event, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but that's the reaction you're going to get from people typically. So right. if the room will allow it, yeah, I think you should have a platform, even if you're not going to use it all the time because you want to move out among the audience and speak you know, in the aisles or whatever. So, But uh, I would, I'd give you a true on both. Okay, great. So we have uh, four minutes left here, and uh, you uh, have a book that's uh, just come out. Uh, it's called the uh, was it called the ABCs of speaking, which is why I wanted to focus a lot of this interview on speaking. So tell us a little bit about that book and where our listeners can pick it up and why they should do so right now. Well, thank you, Adam. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm really excited about this new book. I co-authored it with a couple ladies, Adrian Ashley and Katarina Rando, yep. who have both been involved in speaking for a number of years. And the book basically is literally an ABC of speaking. Each chapter is a letter of the alphabet. So, for example, the first chapter, A, is analysis and action. B is about booking. C is about content. D is about demographics, etc. So it was a collaborative effort of the three of us sharing what you know how the industry really works. How do you work with promoters? What are they looking for? Technology, how do you control it? Uh, storytelling, the importance of incorporating stories into your presentation. Even if it's a technical subject, people obviously relate to stories. Yeah. And so 
the whole purpose of the book is to help the new speaker get off on the right foot, but also even an experienced speaker is going to pick up a few tips. It's like, oh, yeah, I haven't been doing that. I need to do that better or whatever to sharpen up their presentations and what they're doing. And so we talk about fee versus free type you know, speaking models, and, and we talk about offers from the stage and what makes a good offer and a bad offer. We talk about those factors you can control in terms of the environment. We talk about upsells and, and valuing your presentation, demographics. I mean, it's literally, like I said, an ABC of speaking, and it will help the pro or the newbie do a better job, frankly. Absolutely. So, so uh, the key, the key date is March 14th. March 14th. Yep. It is being released on Amazon. Uh, Pi okay. Day. I've got to figure out a way to tie that in somehow. <laughs> uh, but Morgan James is the publisher, and it will be preceding the book that will be coming out sometime in the fall called Consuming Your Content. So that's one I'm working on with my business partner, Brian Haynes, for a release sometime in the fall. Wow. So basically uh, what we can do right now is we can just go to Amazon and do a search for ABCs of Speaking, Brett Ridgway, and it should pop right up. Uh, yeah, actually, I just did it, and there it is. So very good. Uh, make sure everybody goes and checks that out on Amazon, and I also recommend some of Brett's other books too. So uh, we are at the top of the hour here. Uh, Brett Ridgway of Speaker Fulfillment Services, author of many, 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 many books, including the brand-new ABCs of Speaking, and a great friend of mine, I want to thank you so much for joining us here today at the Business Creators Radio Show. It has been an honor, and it has been an education. Well, thank you very much, Adam. I appreciate it very much, and I look forward to you becoming a guest on uh, one of my things again very soon. Absolutely. So for everybody listening, this is Adam Homey, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com where we help you win at the game of business and marketing. As I'm sure you probably just heard some jingle bells there, uh, Princess Stella, who's one of our two office panthers, has jumped up on my lap and she's telling me that this has been a fantastic episode and we're all so happy that you had the opportunity to join us today. So for all of us here, have a great day. See you next time. Take care.